Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, I Am the Gate. It's based upon the lectionary readings from May 3rd, 2020. For almost 10 years now, a group of Christians have gathered on Sunday mornings at Friendship Park, a plaza along the U.S.-Mexico border wall, to share worship and communion. I read about the gatherings this week in an article by Amy Freikom, who visited the community last November. Apparently, this border church has survived every obstacle the U.S. Border Patrol and shifting United States-Mexico relations have thrown at it. If, for example, the Border Patrol won't allow the two sides to stand close enough to hear each other's words, they'll stand 50 feet apart and conduct worship over cell phones. If the participants are forbidden to pass food and drink through the fence, they'll practice sacramental solidarity and serve parallel Eucharists on each side of the border. Some years ago, when the chain-link border fence gave way to a steel barrier, worshippers continued to pass the peace across the border, pinky to pinky, through tiny holes in the wall. Even these days, under COVID-19 lockdown, the church meets via Zoom and Facebook Live. It was helpful for me to read Freikom's article as I prepared to write this essay. For the fourth Sunday of Easter, traditionally known as Good Shepherd Sunday, the lectionary offers us a gospel passage so dense and layered, it's easy to get lost and bogged down. In ten verses of packed metaphor, John gives us sheep, a sheepfold, a shepherd, a gate, a gatekeeper, a pasture, a sneaky band of thieves and bandits, and an even more sinister group of smooth-tongued strangers. At one point, the gospel writer comes right out and says, Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. No kidding. It's tempting to read this section of scripture as if it's written in some obscure code, as if our job is to crack its many secrets. What exactly does the sheepfold represent? Heaven? The church? Our hearts? Who are the thieves and bandits? Are they different from the strangers with the creepy voices? What about the gatekeeper? Is the gatekeeper God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself? No, wait, how can Jesus be the gatekeeper if he's the gate? Doesn't he say he's the gate twice? Actually, how can he be the gatekeeper or the gate if he's the shepherd? It's also tempting to read this passage from a place of complacency and privilege, to assume that we are automatically the insiders, snug inside the sheepfolds of our own merits, that we are never the sheep who heed the stranger's seductive voice, that we never resort to deceptive shortcuts instead of entering through the gate, that we never play the role of bandit or thief in other people's lives, that we unerringly follow the lead of the shepherd when he ventures into new and risky terrain. But I don't think this passage of scripture is meant to stump us or flatter us. I think it's meant to reveal Jesus to us. Yes, Jesus the Good Shepherd, who offers us guidance, nurture, direction, and protection. But also more. For me, a particular revelation of Jesus happened when I thought about the metaphors in this gospel passage alongside Freikom's article about the tenacious little border church between the United States and Mexico. Suddenly, as I imagined eager, loving hands reaching through small gaps in a cold steel barrier, As I pictured the insistent sharing of song, prayer, bread, and wine across a bleak, intractable border, the resonance of Jesus' metaphor hit me full force. 
I am the gate, not I am the wall, the barrier, the enclosure, the dividing line, not I am that which separates, isolates, segregates, and incarcerates. I am the gate, the door, the opening, the passageway, the place where freedom begins. Needless to say, most of us, left to ourselves, don't associate gates with freedom. We think of bars and locks and alarms and enclosures. We imagine toddler gates, maybe, or puppy training gates, prison gates and gated communities. But what if Jesus is a different kind of gate, a gate that opens out instead of closing in? Not the barrier itself, but the aperture in it, a place of release, movement, spaciousness, liberty. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. I know that this chapter of John's Gospel has been interpreted in ways that harm people. I grew up hearing it as an exclusivist, supersessionist text, all about who is in and who is out when it comes to God and God's flock. For years, I read it as biblical proof that Jesus won't love or save people who don't look act, think, believe, pray, love, or worship in the same ways I do. But in fact, this passage at its heart is not about scarcity at all. It's not about the stinginess of God, and it's not about the self-protective walls we like to build and hide behind. Remember, Jesus is the gate. We're not. Gatekeeping is not our job. It's about life, life that pushes across formidable boundaries, life that flourishes in precarious places, Life that never denies the real threat of thieves, bandits, and strangers, and yet holds out the possibility of pasture, nourishment, protection, and rest. Life that perseveres and maybe even thrives in the valley of the shadow of death. Life that reaches through any opening it can find, however small, however fragile, however tenuous, and insists on generous self-giving. This is my body, given for you. Take and eat. Some historians argue that shepherds in Jesus' day often placed themselves across the openings of their sheepfolds during times of danger, literally offering up their bodies for their flocks. Jesus as shepherd. Jesus as gate. Jesus as sacrificial lamb slain for us. Maybe the questions we need to ask about this passage are not code-breaking questions. Maybe they're personal ones. What is it in me that resists the open gate? Where in my life am I walled off, closed to change, averse to movement, risk, freedom, and joy? What flock do I belong to and whose voice do I follow most readily? What calls to me, making seductive promises I should not trust? Do I know the shepherd well enough to recognize his call? Am I willing to leave the fold in order to find pasture? Or am I too complacent, scared, suspicious, and jaded? to pursue abundant life. In the coming weeks, many of us will face these questions in the very particular context of the coronavirus pandemic and its aftermath. The temptation to close our borders and lock our gates will be very, very strong. The fear of death will linger and it might completely overwhelm us. A thousand seductive voices will speak into our ears, promising versions of security that have nothing to do with Jesus' abundant life. Thieves will come to steal and kill and destroy, and so much, so much, will depend on what we believe about the nature and character of our sheepfold, our flock, our shepherd, 
our gate. At the end of her article, Amy Freycomb quotes John Fanestiel, one of the founding pastors of the church in Friendship Park. Fanestiel says he shows up each Sunday to demonstrate the true nature of the border. Where others see a place of crime, fear, death, and hopelessness, Fanestiel insists that those who gather for worship and communion each week see a place of encounter, exchange, friendship, and fellowship. In other words, they make it their practice to see Jesus. Jesus the gate, unlocked, wide open, inviting, free. May we have eyes to see him too. For books this week, Dan reviews Greek to Me, Adventures of the Comma Queen by Mary Norris. When I found Greek to Me at our public library, it was an automatic read, based upon how much I enjoyed Mary Norris's earlier memoir called Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen. In that earlier volume, Norris describes how she worked a number of jobs before she found her true calling. She was a foot checker at a swimming pool, a milk truck driver, a cheese factory worker, a dishwasher, and a cashier. But in 1978, she was hired at the New Yorker magazine for an entry-level position. That was more than 35 years ago, she reminisces, and I've never seriously considered doing anything else. But if copy editing was her calling, Greek has always been her love. Norris is wise, winsome, and flat-out funny. She once referred to herself as a pencil prima donna. Consider the first page of this newest memoir about how she became a lover of all things Greek. Quote, I don't know what gave me the idea that I was good at foreign languages. I was an indifferent student of French in high school, though I longed to study at the Sorbonne instead of on the banks of the Cuyahoga. She grew up in Cleveland. For about 40 years now, Norris has made studying the Greek language, history, and culture a passionate avocation. As an alphabetophile, she traces the history of writing back to 11th century BC Phoenicia. There are the obvious forays into Greek mythology and tragedy. She describes her struggles to learn this dead language that is still very much alive and laughs at her many mistakes. She once asked a street vendor for a donkey instead of some yogurt. At Easter, she mixed up her adverbs and instead of repeating the liturgical affirmation, Christ is risen indeed, she said, really, he is? Much of this memoir reads like a travelogue. Norris has traveled extensively in Greece across the last four decades, and thus her reflections on her experiences in Orthodox monasteries, the Parthenon and its replica in Nashville, the Baths of Aphrodite, etc. Her book made me want to go to Greece. For movies this week, Dan reviews Building the Great Cathedrals. In the year 1144, in what is now a suburb of Paris, the magnificent Basilica of Saint-Denis opened its doors. In doing so, it signaled the emergence of Gothic architecture and ignited a sort of civic competition in all of Europe for who could build the biggest and the best. For the average citizen back then who lived a dark, dirty, and drab existence in an age when few people could read and write, to walk into a sacred space of this scale and magnitude with its colored light of stained glass windows must have been a truly otherworldly experience. How did they make these medieval megastructures of stone and glass, the engineering innovations of flying buttresses and vaulted ceilings with only hand tools and human labor? Why did some of them collapse? In this one-hour documentary, a team of engineers, architects, art historians, and computer scientists searches the naves, bays, and bell towers for clues. 
Nova investigates the architectural secret that the cathedral builders used to erect their towering, glass-filled walls and reveals the hidden formulas drawn from the Bible that drove medieval builders ever upward. I watched this movie from the PBS Nova website. And finally, for poetry on this fourth Sunday of Easter, The Peace of Wild Things by Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in its beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world, and am free. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net from May 3rd, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.